Amen. Good morning, church. Well, like Stephen said, my name is Roman, and I am the college pastor of Cross Point here at Grace Bible Church. For those of you who don't know me, I've been looking forward to opening God's Word, reflecting on it, responding to it with you this morning for a while now. Uh, Brent is enjoying some well-deserved rest after welcoming their second child, and he's just done some amazing work in this community so far. So if you guys would just, just say thank you to him. Now, we know that it's the, the Lord who is faithful to us, but we know also that he works through godly leadership that loves people, and we've seen the fruits of that even in this short amount of time, so grateful for him and for Sarah. So we're going to be in 2 Timothy, and what we're going to be looking at is how we are called to spiritual responsibility, both for ourselves and for others. And so as I've been thinking about that, um, it's just dovetailed really well with where we're at in life. If you know me, if you know Amy, you know that we welcomed our first son about three months ago, and so you know that it's, you know, the standard predictable thing I'm going to talk about what I'm learning as a father, right? Um, and so one of the things that I've been reflecting on is, and that God's been teaching me, is that new life is a huge, profound gift. New life is a profound gift. And at the same time, it comes with new responsibilities, and these two things go hand in hand. They, don't, they aren't separated. New life is a gift, and it comes with new responsibilities. And so the gift part of it hit me really the, the first day that Roman was here. Amy was asleep in bed after delivery, which that was the craziest experience I've had in my life so far. But I woke up the next morning, she's sleeping, and I'm holding our son, and he's not able to do anything. He's not even looking at me. He's sleeping. But just to hold him, just to hold a bundle of human life, just overwhelmed with profound gratitude. This is a gift from God. And just over the next three months, to see him grow in responding to us, to smile in response to us, to see the way that he holds up his head, like every little bit of it is just a joy. It's a gift to be a part of. And right along with that come new responsibilities. And so months before Roman was even born, the Lord was putting on my heart, I've got to step up in some ways. Because now I'm not just responsible before God for leading myself and my wife, but now I'm responsible for leading a little household. And at the end, I will stand responsible before God for how I led my wife, how I led my son. And that's not a burdensome thing. That's not an overwhelming, scary, terrible thing. It's actually a joy to consider along with the gift of his life. There are responsibilities. Roman, when he grows up, when he has a picture of what it looks like to follow Jesus and to love God, that picture will be most shaped by what he's seen at home. And I stand responsible before God in that. And so as I have been enjoying that new gift of his life, I've been recognizing there are new responsibilities that come right along with that gift. And all the parents in the room said, amen. Yeah, welcome to the club, right? And those of us who don't have kids, we can at least understand that at a human level, new life in family is a gift and it comes with responsibilities. You've got to keep that kid alive. You've got to lead that kid faithfully. And the same thing is true spiritually. Whenever we receive new life in Christ, that is a profound gift. To trust that God sent his son to reconcile us, to lay down his life while we were yet sinners, as Stephen said. While we were at our worst 
Christ died for us to cover over our sin, to draw us into relationship with the Father, to give us hope of life to come. That's a gift that no one can exhaust in explaining it. And at the same time, it comes with responsibilities. That gift of new life in Christ comes with responsibilities both to lead ourselves spiritually and in the way that we interact with other believers. We have a responsibility to each other. Now, in our culture, we might lean heavy towards the gift side of this. And that's understandable because the gospel is profoundly good. Forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, new life in Jesus is a massive gift, and we cannot exhaust it. But if we overemphasize this, if we camp out here and we neglect the responsibilities, we do not have a full picture. Along with the gift of new life in Christ come new responsibilities to lead ourselves spiritually and whenever it's necessary to compassionately correct other believers when they're in error. So this is what we're going to see in 2 Timothy chapter 2. If you would go ahead and open up in your Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2, that's going to be on page 995. And while you open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2, I'm going to just give us some context. I want you guys to see what I'm seeing from the Word of God, see that it's not just my words. But as you open up to 2 Timothy chapter 2, just a refresher, what we've been going through, Brent has been doing a great job of teaching us and helping us to see that 2 Timothy is a really an intimate letter between a spiritual father and his spiritual son. Paul is writing to Timothy, a guy who he had discipled and not only discipled in love, but trusted enough to make him the pastor of a church that he planted in Ephesus. Now, Paul's on the tail end of his life. He's in prison, and this is one of the, probably the last letters that he sent out, and he's telling Timothy, I care about you. I'm thinking about you, praying for you, and I'm going to encourage you and give you some instructions is what you're supposed to do as a pastor. This is a heartfelt letter of instruction to Timothy, and Timothy is in a particularly challenging situation. His church is racked by heresy, and as Brent told us last week, there are false teachers who are saying, the resurrection has already happened. They're living sinfully, and they're drawing people astray. So here is Timothy. He's a young pastor in a church, racked by heresy, racked by false teaching. And this is what Paul says to him in verses 22 through 26, just in summary. As a pastor in a conflicted church, Timothy's responsibility is to lead himself spiritually and to compassionately correct deceived people. Two responsibilities that Timothy has, lead himself spiritually and then to compassionately correct people who are deceived. So let's go ahead. We're going to walk through verses 22 through 26 bit by bit. We'll talk about what it means for Timothy, and then what I'll do is I'll step back and say, what does this mean for us, believers of Grace Bible Church in the 21st century? But let's go ahead and pick up the text and start in verse 22. This is where we see that Timothy must lead himself spiritually by running from sin and running towards Christlikeness. Verse 22. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Notice those active commands in there. Flee and pursue. This is not a passive job that Timothy's been called into. This is not a passive role. He is to actively run away from sin. Notice, Timothy's response to sin is everything in moderation. It's okay. Just don't let it control your life. 
It's not to explain away. It's not to rationalize. It's to actively run the opposite direction of sin. Timothy's response in his own life to sin is to run the opposite direction. And notice, what does Paul say? He's to flee youthful passions. We might hear that word and we might think drunkenness. We might think sexual immorality. We might think like think things like that. But more likely for Timothy, youthful passions for him are pertaining to his leadership role in the church. He is an elder of this church. Paul has discipled him, and his role is to shepherd the flock of God. And it's in a difficult season. There are false teachers. There are people who are doing wrong and leading people astray. So youthful passions for him most likely are things like impatience. He's got a picture in his mind of how things should be going in ministry. And when it doesn't go that way, he gets impatient. It would be things like lack of love and kindness. There are people who are doing wrong. There are people who are harming the church. And so he might just view them purely as enemies and lack love and lack kindness in his engagement with them. And it would be easy for him to excuse that, right? They're doing wrong. They're sinning. They're harming the church. Youthful passions. He could easily excuse that stuff. He could be harsh. He could be slow to listen and quick to speak. All of these things are easy mistakes for a young leader to make whenever there are difficult, controversial things going on in a community that he's leading. And these sorts of things, stewing in bitterness and frustration, these are the things that Timothy is to actively run away from. Not excuse. Not just let it have the little corner of his life but to run the opposite direction from. But notice the Christian life, his spiritual responsibility to lead himself doesn't stop at just cutting out sin, fleeing it. He's running to something. He's striving after Christ-likeness. So read the rest of the verse with me. He is to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. There is a particular goal. We might sum up all those character traits as Christ-likeness. These are just not an exhaustive list, but a summary statement of what it means to be like Jesus. Righteousness is right relationship both with God and with human beings to submit to God in humility, to obey him, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what Timothy is to run after. This is what he's to actively pursue. Righteousness, faith, or faithfulness, Submitting to God, trusting Him, and then living consistently in obedience to God. This is faith, faithfulness that He's to pursue. Love is not just a warm fuzzy. Love is being sacrificially committed to the good of others and acting in accordance with that. And then peace, harmony in relationships. These are the things that Timothy is to actively run after, to actively set his sights on, and then give it everything he's got, pushing towards becoming more like Jesus. Timothy's been given the gift of new life in Christ, and with that comes a responsibility to lead himself. He doesn't get to excuse himself as a pastor. I don't need to do those things. He needs to actively reject sin and actively give himself over to becoming more like Jesus. But his responsibility doesn't end at himself. He's, yes, supposed to lead himself well, but he's also to correct others with compassion. So let's go ahead and look at verses 23 through 26. While avoiding fruitless controversy, Timothy must compassionately correct people in order to restore them. Let's read those verses together. 23. 
have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach or skillful in teaching, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So let's start in the front part of that. Verses 23 and 24, Timothy must avoid getting entangled in controversies and quarrels. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. Paul is not saying, hey, just avoid conflict, avoid argument, avoid that because it's uncomfortable. What he's saying is avoid the pitfalls, avoid the traps that you will not be able to get out of. You know, the empty, meaningless, fruitless controversies where it's not really about truth. It's just about arguing. It's about people sounding right. Avoid that. I think all of us can affirm that we've known a person who just will continually argue. It's like their hobby. They love to argue. And even whenever you present them with facts or information or evidence, they just continue to argue with you like he didn't say anything. We're thinking maybe in this political climate. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Right? This is the kind of controversy that Timothy is to avoid. The empty pitfalls that don't produce any help or benefit, avoid those. Not because it's conflict, not because it's uncomfortable, but because it produces nothing beneficial. You'll get stuck in that stuff. Instead, what Timothy is to do is to engage and to compassionately correct those who are deceived. So pick it up again in the middle of 24. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Notice there's two elements there. There's compassion and there's correction. So how do we see compassion? The Lord's servant is to be kind to everyone. He's to recognize his opponents as fellow human beings, to respect them, to show kindness to them, to be on level with them. That's kindness. And he's to patiently endure evil. He is to walk in expecting, I'm going to be hurt. I'm going to be wronged. I'm going to be spoken against and slandered and maligned. And my call is to endure that with patience. Sounds like Christ. He's to grow in reflecting Christ as he's wronged to continue to patiently endure in kindness and then correct them. But he's also to do this correction with gentleness, as it says in the beginning of uh, 25, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is humility, having a consideration for the other person, not just coming in guns blazing because I'm speaking the truth and they need to hear it, but to consider that other person and in humility deliver the truth as they need to hear it. Timothy is to correct with gentleness. This is compassionate correction. But he's also to correct. Look at verse 23 again. He's able to teach or skillful in teaching. He's not just speaking his own thoughts. He's not just speaking his own advice. He's not just sharing his own experiences. He is teaching the word of God. So he's walking in. He's speaking truth on the basis of what God says. He's not avoiding conflict. He's choosing the right conflict and speaking God's truth in the things that matter. So he's able to teach, skillful in teaching, and then 25, he's correcting his opponents. This isn't a concern for his own comfort. This is choosing his battles wisely. 
and on the things that matter, teaching and correcting with compassion. This is what Timothy is called to do. This is his responsibility towards others. And then in 25 and 26, we see that Timothy's correction, the goal of it is God-granted repentance. There's a goal in his correction. There's a hope for end, and that goal is God-granted repentance for these people. Let's pick it up in the middle of 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses or awaken from a drunken stupor, we might say, and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's another reason that Timothy is to have compassion on these people. They're deceived, and they're enslaved to Satan, to the evil one. He, uh, he needs to have the picture and the understanding that these people have an abusive master. They are deceived. They are drawn astray. And if I'm going to enter in, I need to understand this person is an abused slave, and I want to deal with them in compassion. Now, if we step back and we don't think about it in a spiritual sense, we just think about it relationally. All of us can think of a young boy or a young girl that we've seen who's just acted out. They're difficult to be around. They use profane language. They're disobedient. They're violent. And whenever we just interact with that child, it's easy to get frustrated. It's easy to get angry. It's easy to say, why are you doing what you're doing? And then whenever we step back and we get a little bit more context and we realize that little boy or that little girl comes from a very difficult home. And in fact, at home, they're abused. They're cursed at. They're mistreated. They're not given an example of what it looks like to live as a decent human being. That gives us a different understanding of them. It doesn't excuse their behavior, but it does soften our hearts towards them. This is not just somebody to smack over the head. This is somebody to deal with and correct in compassion. Why? Because they have an abusive authority over their life. Timothy, in recognizing that these people are enslaved to Satan, is to deal with them compassionately. And the goal of his compassion is restoration. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Timothy's not to enter into correction thinking, I'm going to blast them. I'm going to be the one who's right. I'm the one who's in authority here. Listen to me. This isn't about self-vindication. This is about the good of the person across the table from him. His opponents are not pure enemies. They are opportunities for God to grant repentance. That's the goal of his correction. Not self-vindication, but care for the other person. And notice who grants repentance. Middle of verse 25, God grants repentance. If Satan is the one who's enslaving these people, if he is the one who's drawn them astray, Timothy cannot change that on his own. He cannot change their heart. He cannot free them from the power of Satan. God can. And it's God who's going to draw that person out of that darkness and into light. Timothy has to walk into those corrections, praying and depending on God who sets free captives. He cannot do it on his own. He seeks their restoration. He trusts in God, and he says, use me as your instrument. This is Timothy's responsibility is to lead himself spiritually and to correct others in compassion for their good. The gift of new life comes with new responsibilities. 
Timothy has believed in the gospel, and because of that, he has now the responsibility to lead himself and to compassionately correct others. Now, Timothy is a pastor of a church, but this is true for all of us. If you have trusted in Christ, if you've received the gift of new life in him, you now have the responsibility to lead yourself well spiritually, and you have the responsibility to correct other believers when they're in error. New life comes with new responsibilities to lead ourselves well and to correct each other with compassion. So let's just walk through what that would look like. First of all, we must lead ourselves spiritually. How do we do that? Really practically from the text, we run from sin and we run after Christ-likeness. Simply put, we lead a repentant life. We lead a repentant life. We run from sin and we run after Christ-likeness. Now, I think every place has its own kind of spiritual atmosphere. I've brought this up before as I've, as I've gotten to talk with you guys. Um, we lived in Dallas for about four and a half years, my wife and I, after living in Nacogdoches for a good while. And apart from the glitz and the glamour and all that stuff, it's just a different place. It's a different zone, and it has a different kind of spiritual effect on you. Um, in Dallas, we were very easily got caught up in buying things, enjoying nice things. Uh, there's just a spiritual culture there that affects humans in a weird way. And then coming back to Nacogdoches and doing life here again, start to see this place has its own spiritual malaise or spiritual infection that just is in the air. And if we are not wary, it will begin to seep in and it will set down roots. And honestly, I feel like what often affects most of us in Nacogdoches is just this spiritual apathy. It's a complacency with sin and it's an apathy towards godliness. We are all too easily satisfied with lowly, corrupt things and saying, we excuse it, we allow it a little bit, all things in moderation. We don't take serious action against it all too often. And when it comes to striving after Christ-likeness, there's no effort there. And this isn't just you, this is me too. Like I've prayed this prayer so many times and I've heard so many other people pray this prayer, God, help me to not want sin and help me to want what I should want, all right? I've prayed that prayer many times. I've heard other people pray that prayer many times. Help me to not want sin. Help me to want obedience. And here's the thing. If we continue to sit passively and pray that, we're neglecting our responsibility. If we just sit passively and say, God, help me to not want sin. Help me to want obedience. And that's all we're doing with no action. We are excusing ourselves from responsibility. I'll give you a gross example, okay? Uh, so think of yourself as a parent, and some of you might be in this situation. Um, you don't have to raise your hand because it would be embarrassing. Uh, but you have a child that is of an age where it's, it's just beyond the time where eating your boogers is, is a normal, understandable thing, right? Like they are past that age it is now clearly wrong. You've had this discussion numerous times. We don't do that. It's not good for you. Just don't do that. And yet your child continues to eat their boogers, right? 
And you're like, okay, here we go. We're going to have this conversation again. Do not do that. We've had this conversation. Don't do that. And your child responds to you, can you help me not to want that anymore? Like, what are you going to do as a parent? You're going to be like, what are you even talking about? No. No. Just stop doing that. Just make a different choice. And if you're hungry, come talk to me. I'll give you carrots. I'll give you celery. We got enough food, okay? You don't need to do that. If we get that at a human relational level, why does it not make sense for us when we're in the thick of just being complacent with sin? When we don't want to strive after godliness, when we find ourselves in that place, what we need to do is repent, is to actively turn away, to make a choice to reject sin and strive after, give everything we've got to becoming more like Christ. We don't do that on our own, though. We don't do that on our own. We are motivated and compelled and empowered by God himself. One of the teachers of the early church named Augustine said it this way, without God, we cannot, but without us, he will not. So without God, we cannot reject sin. We cannot pursue Christlikeness. It is impossible. We have to receive mercy from him. We have to receive cleansing from him. We have to receive the power of the Spirit to reject sin and pursue Christlikeness. Without God, we cannot. It's not by our own power and strength. But without us, God will not. And so if we're just passively sitting down and saying, God, zap me, change me, make me like Jesus, but we are not making choices in alignment with that, God will not. It's a both and. Without God, we cannot, but without us, he will not. This is grace-driven effort, rejecting sin actively, fleeing from it, and pursuing Christ-likeness. I'd like to keep on talking about that, but we've got to keep on going because we have a spiritual responsibility to lead ourselves on a daily basis, reading Scripture, praying, sharing our faith, serving. These are things where we are actively pursuing growing in Christ-likeness, but then we also have a responsibility to each other. We have a responsibility to correct others in error with compassion. And as I say that, you might be thinking, okay, that we is for you and Brent and the rest of the staff and the elders, not for me. You might be thinking, that's your job. Don't put your job on me. If you're thinking that, I'd just like to read some verses to you that show us that as a believer, as a child of God, it is our responsibility to speak the truth to each other in love. This is not just for pastors. This is not just for elders. This is the role of believers. So here's just a couple verses. Proverbs 27.6. You can write these down and look them up later. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, <clears throat> and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If you're only speaking things that are nice, maybe you're not that good of a friend. If you're only saying things that are comfortable and non-offensive, maybe you're not being a good friend. Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ or the gospel dwell in you richly. This is all believers. Let the gospel dwell in you richly with the result that you teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. Admonish is just another word for correct, to guide back to truth. Ephesians 4, 15, 
speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up into him who is the head, Christ. It's both speaking the truth and doing it in love. This is all of us. This is all of our roles so that we might grow. Galatians 6.1, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep a watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. That word spiritual is not for the high and mighty, the spiritually elite. It's for if you trusted in Christ and you're submitted to God's spirit, you're spiritual. You're part of the club. And your role is to correct other believers when they wander away in sin. I could go on, guys, but we've got to keep on going. Our role as believers, as a basic responsibility, is to correct other believers compassionately when they're in error. So what are some examples of error that we can wander into? What would this look like at a ground level? Well, all of us are going to walk alongside other believers who are just caught up in sexual sin. We know they're in a relationship that they're not married to this other person, and yet they're acting in a way that stirs up those intimate desires, and they are not covenant committed to that person. And so what it looks like for us is to say, brother, sister, what does the word of God have to say about that part of your life? To enter into compassionate correction in that situation. Others of us are going to cross paths with other believers who are headed towards an adulterous divorce where their marriage is in shambles, they're convinced that there's no coming back from this. They're convinced that it's God's will to leave this spouse and instead commit to this other person who loves them and who they love. They're convinced that this is God's will. And for us as believers, as we walk alongside people in that situation, the call is to compassionately correct and say, what would God's word say to you in the midst of this critical time? We're also going to walk alongside people who are harboring unresolved bitterness and unforgiveness. Somebody has wronged somebody, and they just hold on to it and are angry. There's no desire to forgive, to release. There's no desire to go pursue reconciliation. There's just anger towards that other person. And our call is to compassionately correct and say, how would the gospel influence the way that you're responding to this? How does the fact that you've been forgiven need to affect your forgiveness of this other person? We are going to walk alongside people who have obvious habitual sins like alcoholism or addiction to pills or addiction to pornography. Those are the big obvious ones. But then we're going to walk alongside people with habitual sins that often go under the radar in our culture. Things like compulsively eating too much or too little. Things like Laziness, where comfort is king, free time is the most important thing, and just enjoying it is the most important goal in my life. Laziness is a pattern of disobedience to God. We're going to walk alongside people who cannot control their mouths. And so every time they're around somebody else, they talk about other people behind their back. They share information about other people they should not share. They critique and undercut other people. It's gossiping. And according to Scripture, this is not good for God's people. And in all of these situations, we're called to compassionately correct. Not with sheriff badges beating people over the head, but to ent enter in and in kindness and in compassion correct. So those are some situations. Let's walk through some principles for what does it look like to compassionately correct. How do we actually do this? Three things, and I'll fill them in as I go. 
First of all, deliver your correction in kindness and gentleness. I'll talk more about that in a second, but deliver your correction in kindness and gentleness. Secondly, correct on the basis of God's word. What you correct, how you correct somebody needs to come from God's truth. And then three, prayerfully depend on the Lord for that person's repentance. Trust God for that person's repentance. Okay, so deliver it in kindness and gentleness. If God led us to our repentance by his kindness, if he sent his son to die for us that we might be reconciled, how much more should we approach others in kindness when we deliver correction? That is our MO. Kindness is not avoiding offense. Kindness is not making sure that I don't hurt their feelings. Kindness is recognizing this person is a fellow human being. I'm equal with them, and I'm going to respect them. And here's a way that you can think about being gentle whenever you deliver correction. This is a rule of thumb that I'm, I've tried to use and I continue to try to grow in using. But this is what I always ask myself. How can I fully speak the truth? How can I fully speak the truth in a way this person can best receive? You see that? It's a both and. How can I fully speak the truth? Because honestly, if we're honest for most of us, we're going to be concerned about what this person thinks or how they react. And our temptation is to fear that person more than we fear God. And if we're going to undercut the truth or we're going to curtail the truth, that's not kindness, that's cowardice. We're called to fully speak the truth, but we're also called to do it in a way that this person can receive for their good. And so we consider them and we speak it in a way that is as best received as possible. And then we leave it in the Lord's hands. We don't get to excuse harshness because they're in sin. We don't get to excuse harshness because we're speaking the truth. We do it in a way that's considerate of the other person. Secondly, correct on the basis of God's word. Your opinions, your experiences, your advice might be super helpful, but it's not the authority. And so if you're going to correct somebody, do it on the basis of God's word. This is where the authority lies. This is the standard that we are all held to as believers. And so if we're going to step in and do something uncomfortable, if we're going to correct another believer, we're going to do it according to God's word. That's the standard that we're all held to. And so as you walk into that situation, you want to know what God's word has to say about the situation. And you want to compassionately draw them to look at God's word and then only offer advice, experiences, opinions as the conversation develops and it's helpful. And then lastly, prayerfully depend on the Lord for that person's repentance. Remember, if they're in significant error, if their whole life is given over to this particular sin or this wrong issue, the problem goes deep. It's a spiritual problem and you cannot fix that. I cannot fix that. And so we have to walk in praying and depending on the Lord saying, Use me as an instrument. God, have mercy on this person. Draw them to repentance. I can't do it on my own, and I'm not going to try. Help me. Grant me wisdom. Be with my mouth. When Roman was born, I was hit with just this profound gratitude, this sense that this is a good thing. Just to be with him is a gift. And at the same time, it comes with responsibilities. We've got to keep him alive, and we've got to lead him well. He's only three months right now, but he's going to grow up soon. And so we, at the same time as receiving this gift, we have new responsibilities that we're walking in. And it's the same thing for us as believers. As we receive life in Christ, we rejoice in that, we walk joyfully in it, and we carry out our responsibilities to lead ourselves 
and to compassionately correct each other when we need to. So what are some next steps? Just some practical next steps going forward. What does this look like? As the band comes on up, I'll walk through these. First of all, consider what it would look like to take ownership of your daily walk with the Lord. Just on a daily basis, all of us can grow in these categories, reading Scripture regularly, saturating our hearts and minds in God's Word, praying actively before the Lord, sharing our faith, serving. As I just list those four things, Scripture, prayer, sharing faith, service, there's room for all of us to grow, me included. And so what would it look like to take some practical, conscious, committed steps to grow in those areas? Take ownership of your daily walk with the Lord. You know where growth areas are for you. Secondly, there's a men's ministry study starting on October 18th, Thursday mornings at 6.30 a.m., five weeks long, and we're going to be looking at how to take a stand against pornography. Guys, I am so convinced that men, by and large, experience less of God's grace and power and beauty because we're wrapped up in this junk. And here's an opportunity to flee it, to take an active step and say, I'm rejecting this, and I'm going to pursue faithfulness instead. Here's an opportunity to do this with other men and start to walk in greater joy and power in the Lord. And then finally, just a couple reflection questions for you at home. If I've said some things that ruffle your feathers a little bit, <laughs> uh, maybe that's a sign, just a good time to spend some time with the Lord and ask, why, why am I offended? Why am I frustrated? So some questions to consider. What would prevent me from receiving godly correction from a fellow believer? Why would I be offended by that? Why would I think that's wrong? Is it pride? Is it a feeling that nobody else has that authority? What would prevent me from receiving godly correction? And then for others of us, what would prevent me from compassionately correcting another believer in significant error? Is it fear of man? Is it not knowing the word of God enough? Is it feeling like you don't have that role? What prevents you from fulfilling your responsibility towards others? So there we are. There's some things for us to reflect on and take stock of. Let me go ahead and close this in prayer. Almighty God, you are good, and by your kindness you lead us to repentance. By your goodness you draw us out of darkness and into light. Lord, you have drawn us from the pit, and you've given us life. And so, Lord, would you please not only help us to rejoice in that, but to walk faithfully and responsibly in this life that we have in Christ. Lord, would you refresh us and revive us that we would hate evil and run after good? And would you help us to grow in confidently and compassionately drawing each other back to the word and remembering our calling, who we are in Christ? May we flourish because of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.